Amen. Well, the, um, the, the passage that I've been given is one that's read most Christmases, and it's one that you're all very familiar with, so I will read it from John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. If we could just pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that this passage, which we have heard so often and is so wonderful, might burn into our hearts and be applied into our lives for the sake of Christ and his glory. Amen. Well, I don't know how many of you read biographies, but how many biographies start like this? I can't think of any biography that starts like this, because this is, this, is, this is just completely mind-blowing. The only books you'll get starting like this is something out of Marvel Comics, some science fiction thing that doesn't exist. But this biography is written by someone who knew Jesus personally, who spent three years of his life with them, and in fact, as we know from comparing Matthew and John, was Jesus' cousin. His mum was Mary, Jesus' mother's sister. So at the cross, when he was told to look after Jesus' mother, it was look after Auntie Mary. He grew up with Jesus. He was in the same area. He knew him well. He was in the inner circle, not just one of the disciples. He was in the inner circle. At the Mount of Transfiguration, when he met Elijah and Moses, Jesus took three disciples with him, Peter, James, and John. When he went to Gethsemane and went apart to pray, he took three disciples with him out of all the others, Peter, James, and John. This man was in the inner circle. He knew Jesus really, really well. And he says, this man existed before the world came into being. This man is everything. There is nothing that you can see, touch, or feel that is there for any reason other than this man. Is it any wonder, therefore, that most modern theologians now try to say or 
people who are critical say that, well, did John really write this gospel? Because it's so unbelievable that someone who lived with him and knew him could start off making this sort of a declaration. Well, for those of you who are interested, the oldest piece of scripture that we have, Old New Testament scripture, is from the Gospel of John. It's 150 AD, dated to. And what's more, we know from Clement of Alexandria, and Clement of Alexandria lived about 150 years, 105 years after John's death. But he had a friend called Arrhenius, and Arrhenius was the pupil of a man called Polycarp. And Polycarp knew John. Polycarp lived in Ephesus and knew John. Polycarp actually told Arrhenius, John wrote this and the three letters and Revelation. And Arrhenius told Clement of Alexandria that there is no doubt that this book is written by the man who walked with Jesus. And this passage, this passage, if you like, if, if there was one bit of the Bible, 13 verses that you wanted to have and save only, save these 13 because in here is all scripture encapsulated from the beginning to the end. It's all there. It's all there, and it's all there so wonderfully that it's also straightforward and also understandable. It's, it's like, um, to use the sort of thing that Stephen might say, it's a bit like the beginning of a symphony. Every single bit that's eventually going to be expanded in the rest of the book is in here. It's all in here, and he develops it all those various themes. And the thing that's really clever about it is that you understand it when you read it. It's not complicated. It says Jesus is eternal, verses one and two. It says it twice, just in case you don't understand it, in the beginning, twice. It says he's completely divine. He is as divine as God. He was not only with God, he was God, in verse one. Everything that was made was made by him, and just in case you haven't got the message, nothing that has been made was made without him. Everything's in Jesus. He wasn't just alive, he was all life. He is the source of all life. And that life is the light of all men. But the darkness and the earth doesn't understand it. The world doesn't want to recognize it, and his own creation would not receive him. So it's all pretty clear. The topics there are all clear. And in preparing for this, I, I listened to several sermons, and they all just said the same thing again and again. It was perfectly clear just from reading this passage and listening to it. But what I was really blessed by, and I would recommend all of you to do it, was sitting down and reading the whole Gospel of John. Don't skim it, but don't stop. Just keep going. Just sit down and read the whole thing all the way through. It doesn't actually take that long, and it's quite incredible. It's quite incredible what it, what it, what it can say. But there is just one thing on this passage I'd like to just draw out, because some people, when this is read at Christmas, say, well, what's the word? What is this word thing? Why doesn't he just say, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God, and he was with God? God in the beginning. And the reason for that is, um, is because John is using something that 
Paul uses in Athens. Do you remember when Paul went to Athens and he walked around and he saw all the altars and he saw one that was to an unknown God and then he stood up and preached to them and said, I've come to tell you about the unknown God. He used something they could identify with. Well, the word of God, the word of the Lord, to a Jew was completely synonymous with God himself. If you look in the Old Testament, the first words, the word of the Lord, is the first words in the books of Hosea, Joel, Jonah, Micah, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. If you look at Ezekiel, 28 chapters of Ezekiel start with the word of the Lord. To a Jew, the word of the Lord was as good as saying the Lord himself. The word was God. And so he would understand it immediately. But John lived in Ephesus. And the Greeks understood it differently. The Greek philosophers had a word that they used as the essence of everything. The plan of the universe. The thing that gave meaning to everything around them. And the philosophers sought this thing, which they called logos, the word. So by using the word here, he instantly got the attention of the Jews who understood it and of the Greeks in Ephesus where he wrote so that people could understand because he actually had a cross-cultural introduction to this. This is a biography of the essence of the universe, the source of life the meaning to everything, and what's more, shock for the Greeks, it's a person. Because what he's saying here is, this vast universe, which we understand the size of far more than John did, and this insignificant little planet, is the visited planet. The creator of the entire universe came here. That's what Christmas is about. We've overlaid it with tinsel, snowmen, children's nativity scenes, presents, Christmas trees, parties, food, all of those things, none of which are wrong, but it's not the essence of Christmas. The essence of Christmas is that the eternal creator of the entire universe visited this planet. And a test of how well you really understand that in your life is to ask yourself this, which do I find harder to believe, that Jesus died or that he rose from the dead? Because most people who are alive today, most non-Christians, if they know about Jesus, will accept, yes, he was a real person, and he came and he died, and that's it. But as for this, as for this rising from the dead, but I can remember telling my children, all of them, reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And when you get to Aslan dying, the shock on their faces is so visible. And when the stone table is broken too and Aslan is back, they smile and say, ah, you didn't trick me. Normal service has been restored. It's, it's Aslan's death that shocks the children. Not, not the table being broken and him coming back to life. And that's what shocked the disciples. And that's what should shock us. So that's what this, this passage is about. Is, is the creator of the universe 
who was there at the beginning, will be there at the end, through whom all things were made, has come to earth. And now there's really only two questions, and they're both why questions. The first one is, why did John write this book? Because John wrote this book about 20 to 30 years after the other Gospels. John had been about 25 when Jesus died, and he lived till he was Margaret's age. And uh, he wrote this book in his 70s, which is an interesting thought for those who think that maybe they're a bit too old to give anything of value to the church. Thank goodness John didn't feel that, because he wrote this in his 70s. And for those of you in your 80s, he wrote Revelation in his 80s. So there's plenty of scope for older people. And Clement of Alexandria, who I mentioned, actually wrote this. Last of all, John, perceiving the external facts had been made plain, was urged by his friends and inspired by the Spirit and composed a spiritual gospel. That's what Alexandria, that's what Clement of Alexandria wrote about 200 AD. Because John was the last of the apostles alive People read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they saw the miracles, but they were saying things like, where does he actually say in words of one syllable that he was the Messiah, that he was the God? Sounds a bit ridiculous. It's like going to the queen, going when the queen was alive, or the king at, the, at Buckingham Palace, and, and going round and talking to her and chatting to her, and then you come away and you're telling everyone about it, and they say to her, but did she actually say she was the queen? <laughs> and you say, no, she didn't. Of course she didn't. I didn't need her to say she was the queen. But how do you know she was then? It's ridiculous. And that's what people thought. But they also said, and he taught in parables. They're all a bit tricky to understand these parables. So John said, right, I'm going to write a gospel. And John's gospel does not contain a single parable. There are no parables in John at all. It's completely different. It's clear teaching that cannot be questioned. And he writes his gospel without a parable, and he has, because we all know the important number in the Bible, seven, so he has seven miracles only, six of which are not in any of the other gospels, and he has seven I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. All of those, each of those starting with the words Yahweh, God's name, I am, seven times. And the balance of this book is unusual as well. First of all, we've just read John's account of the Christmas story. There aren't any wise men, there aren't any shepherds, there aren't anything in that. And in fact, he's got very little on the first couple of years. But when you get, he's got seven chapters on a 48-hour period the Thursday and the Friday. Seven chapters on what's the most shocking thing about a person whose biography starts like this, just before his death, explaining why he died, because that's the unbelievable bit. And it all focuses on Jerusalem and Judea. It's, it's, it's a most unusual passage, a most unusual book. And, and also, he's the one that emphasizes throughout the entire period of his life that Jesus was in control. 
He was always in control. Jesus was not killed. Jesus laid down his life. There is a huge difference. We will all die. We come to earth to die. Jesus came to earth to rise from the dead. Because if you read in John, it starts in John chapter 5, verse 18, two years before his death. It says the Jews tried even harder to kill him. Chapter 7, 25, isn't this the man you're trying to kill? Verse 30, they tried to seize him, but no one could lay a hand on him because his time had not yet come. Then verse 44, they wanted to seize him, but no one could lay a hand on him. He's in the temple, they want to seize him, but he slips away. 1039, again they want to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. And does it always make you wonder, why was it that they needed Judas? They didn't need Judas to point out which one was Jesus. They knew who Jesus was. They would recognize Jesus. They just tried to seize him so many times before and failed. And they felt they needed an insider to go and identify him and seize him because Jesus was in control. Jesus says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. And that ties back to this passage. In him was life. He is eternal. He is God. Of course he can't be killed. The cross is not a tragedy but a triumph. So, if I may, because I nearly always do, <laughs> refer to C.S. Lewis, and um, this is how ridiculous it is, this uh, fictitious vicar, well, I hope it's a fictitious vicar. In The Great Divorce, this vicar describes that he's not going to stay and go to heaven just yet because he's got to nip back to earth because... He's got a study evening. I'm taking the text about growing up to the measure of the stature of Christ and working out an idea which I feel sure you'll be interested in. I'm going to point out how people always forget that Jesus was a comparatively young man when he died. He would have outgrown some of his earlier views, you know, if he'd lived. As he might have done with a little more tact and patience, I'm going to ask my audience to consider what his mature views would have been a profoundly interesting question. What a different Christianity we might have had if only the founder had reached his full stature. I shall end up by pointing out how this deepens the significance of the crucifixion. One feels for the first time what a disaster it was. What a tragic waste. So much promise cut short. Jesus was not killed. It is not a tragedy. Jesus laid down his life. Which brings me to the second why question, and a much, much bigger question. We have this description of Jesus as God, eternal, creator of all things. Why, if you forgive the pun, why on earth did he come? Why, why, why bother? We know the size of the universe. We know how insignificant this little blue dot is. Why did he come? 
Well, John tells us in the very first discourse he has in his gospel. Um, His first discourse is, of course, with Nicodemus in chapter 3. And it's a verse that we all know. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The reason, and the only reason why, is God's love for you and for me. This passage mentions light, life, creation, eternity, real power, but the answer to the question, why? Why would he do this? is love. And if I may, C.S. Lewis 2, for those of you who don't know them, the Screwtape letters are letters written by uh, a fictionary devil to uh, an underling telling him how best to win souls for Satan. So the enemy is, of course, God. And so he writes, to us a human is primarily food. Our aim is the absorption of its will into ours, the increase of our own area of selfhood at its expense. But the obedience which the enemy demands of men is quite different. One must face the fact that all this talk about his love for men and his service being perfect freedom is not mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. He really does love them. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself. Creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own, not because he's absorbed them into his will, but because they have freely chosen to be his. We want them for food. He wants them for sons. It is really quite incredible, and John knows this better than anyone because John never described himself by name in his whole gospel. He has a phrase for himself, and his phrase is, he uses it six times, the disciples whom Jesus loved. That's how he calls himself, and that's John. When you read the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's him. Now, I used to think that that was a bit boastful. Like, if I was sitting with my two brothers and said, well... I'm the one that mother loved. They might take offense at that. And I used to think, well, John, that's a bit, bit like, so I don't know, Mourinho, and I'm the special one. <laughs> but it's not, because he uses this phrase because he knew what his love for God was like. He knew what his faith was like. He knew what his belief was like. And he knew nothing, nothing that he had was as reliable as God's love for him. The only thing he could really trust in was God's love for him because it was so strong that this God, this Jesus described in John 1, chose to come to earth. That's why the, the John's gospel has got such an odd ending. If you get to the ending, because 
it's, it's through the whole thing. I really do recommend just read the whole thing. You get to John 20 and verse, the last verse of John 20, and you really feel to yourself, right, this should be the end of the gospel. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. End. Good ending. But it's not. It's 21. Afterwards. What do you mean afterwards? You can't have an ending like that and go afterwards. And the afterwards is a story that's only told in John. And we all know the story. The story is of Peter being asked three times by Jesus, do you love me? It's for Peter to learn what John knew. Peter was the confident one. Peter thought he was the special one. He had confidence. Though everyone else leave you, I won't leave you. I have real confidence in my love for you and my being better than anyone else. And he is reinstated and told by Jesus. So in effect, he turns around and says, look, the only thing I can have confidence in, Jesus, is that you know that I love you. He is now trusting in Jesus' knowledge and love of him, not his feelings. And for someone of my ilk, being from Ulster, where if we feel strongly about something, it does require us not to raise our voice and repeat things twice, but to thump the table, kick over a chair, and really let people know we think it's serious. And John, I'm pleased to say, this disciple of love was no snowflake. He was not a person in touch with his compassionate side. Because John and his brother James were known as the sons of thunder. That's the description of them. And when they were going back through Samaria once and there was a village that didn't welcome them, John suggests to Jesus, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them all? And when he saw someone casting out demons, he tried to stop them because he wasn't one of us. And he was ambitious. He and his brother took Jesus aside and said, Teacher, we want you to do something for us. We want you to do whatever we ask. Mark 10, 35. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And they reply, let one of us sit in your right hand and the other on left when you come into glory. And he was brave because everyone thinks that Peter was the only one that followed Jesus into the high priest's house, but there were actually two disciples went. And if you read in John 18 and 15, 16, John went as well. He was there as well, and he was the one who actually got Peter in. He loved Jesus, of that there was no doubt. But his confidence was not in his love for Jesus, but God's love for him. So what does all that mean for us? How do we apply it? Well, the really good thing is I don't have to apply it. Because John does it for us. John does it for us because... If you read his first letter, which is only four pages long, he puts the word love in it 25 times. And he applies the importance of God loving us and sending his son as to what it means for us. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. 
Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love doesn't know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. That is what we have to do. The love God shown for us. If you think of this passage and what Jesus did, the person who was there at the beginning, who made all things and came to earth for his love for you and for me, then we have to love one another. And if we do love one another, then the last bit of this, of this passage comes true for us. We have the right to become children of God. That's what it says in verse 12, a right to become children of God. How do you do that? Well, the first thing it says in, in 12, it says, yet to all who received him, and how do you receive him? The simple thing is, you've heard about God, you listened about God, you know God's character, so the easiest thing for you to do first is not to have faith in God, because you can't will yourself into faith. This says that you would be born again, not of human decision or a husband's will, but of God. You don't will yourself into faith. Lots of people try and give up. What you do instead is you trust God. You trust his character. You know him and you like him and you trust him. And you trust him and you trust his love for you and you walk forward day by day by day and then your faith grows. And your faith, it grows out of your daily experience of his presence in your life. And with that faith comes the belief and with that belief is the gift that you have the right to become a child of God. It is a gift, but once given, it's a right. We can't will our faith into being, but we can choose to trust God every morning, every day, and thank him every night. Trust in his love, walk with him, and as a result, the eternal creator God, his will and his love, will make us born of God, not of our own will or anyone else's. Amen.